As a human race, the one thing that we crave, you could probably say more than anything else, is a good life. A good life. That desire is universal in all of us. It's a, it's a very natural desire. Likely maybe a little bit different here in the West than in other places in the world. In some places of the world, they just try to survive in order to have life. But especially here in the West, we all want a good life. A comfortable life, an easy life, an enjoyable life. Many of us work hard when we can, when we're young, so that at some point later on we can enjoy the fruits of our labor. But we all want to enjoy life, even while we're working hard. We want to be able to have fun on the weekends. We want to be able to enjoy uh, our hobbies, enjoy our work towards our vacations, right, so that we can have a, a good time and to be able to relax and enjoy life. Now, this isn't always an altruistic, sort of uh, self-centered, selfish pursuit. We, we even work hard so that other people can enjoy a good life sometimes, our children, sometimes our parents, our, our spouse. We want a good life for everyone. Now, deep down, we know that it doesn't just happen that way. Life is filled with ups and with downs. Life is filled with mountains and with valleys, with ease, with hardship, with joy, with sorrow, with health, with sickness. But the back half of those, we don't really welcome those things. If, if we can help it, we, we try to avoid them as best as we can. We all want a fulfilling life and an abundant life. Like I said, this is the universal human pursuit. We try every means to get there. Sometimes even unethically so, often sinfully so, but mostly through good, plain, hard work. And in some ways, we can't be faulted for that kind of pursuit. We could say that we were even created with that kind of desire. And besides all that, this present life is all we know. And we all want to have a good life. And of course, our culture knows this and caters to it. Our culture knows that life is filled with roadblocks to a good life. And so it tries to help us out by, by removing the roadblocks to help us achieve that for which we all long for. And so from a material standpoint, we're, we're bombarded with advice on how to best invest our money or how to make money quickly and easily. Of course, the worst of humankind comes out in this pursuit in things like the gambling industry and crime, even in sexual immorality. In terms of physical health, we are bombarded with diets and with cleanses and with exercise programs and with uh, health products and with body modification treatments, all designed to help us avoid sickness and to look good and to enjoy a long, healthy life. And for the most part, that too is a good thing, a, a good pursuit. And then psychologically, in order to have a healthy soul, that's what suke means, we're, we're bombarded with meditation exercises, self-help advice in the forms of books and magazines and websites, all designed to help us to enjoy a healthy self-image or to think positive thoughts. Even popular-level so-called Christianity has entered into that fray with book titles such as Your Best Life Now or Healing the Wounds of the Past. 
All of that is designed to improve our lives or to enhance our lives. But the very fact that those things are out there tells us that perfect lives are just beyond our grasp. As hard as we try to get there, we never seem to be able to reach it. Now, all of those thoughts can be a little bit depressing, can't they? It's all true, but it's kind of a downer, especially on Easter when we're supposed to be happy and cheerful. But what if you received an offer, maybe not so much for a better life, but for a new life? Well, that idea is really what this weekend is all about. It's all about death and life. Good Friday is about the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Easter Sunday is about the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. But tied in with all that is the fact that Jesus' death and life has a bearing on your death and on your life. Now, when I say it that way, it kind of makes us take notice, doesn't it? It has bearing on your death and life. We usually talk in terms of life and death. But when we think about Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we think about death and life. Death, then life. That's the way it was for Jesus. But you might not think about the fact that that's the sequence for every one of us, too. You see, the events that happened in and around Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago aren't just a neat little story about a famous teacher who was raised from the dead. That story is intricately connected to you and to your life and to this offer of a new life. The story presents us with an opportunity for death and then life. The story is an offer not for a better life, but for a new life. You can actually catch a hint of that in the story itself. Because after Jesus dies on the cross, Matthew records in his account that, and this is in Matthew 27, 52 and 53, it's just sort of this, this little snippet, really, that we don't often talk a whole lot about, but it, it says there that tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. And they came out of the tombs and, and after Jesus' resurrection, it says, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now that's that's kind of strange. But it actually points to what was accomplished by Jesus' death on the cross. So this is before Jesus was raised. This was after he died on the cross. And you have life beginning to appear. People who are in tombs being raised to life and walking around Jerusalem. But what it says is that there actually can be new life after death. Now this is clear in lots of different places in the Bible that talk about that. But there's probably no place that it's stated more concisely and succinctly than in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn there. Now, if you're new to the church, I just want to let you know that there are some Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. If there's not one right in front of you, just ask someone beside you or around you to to reach you one. And I just encourage you to, to find that, look in the table of contents, and find Ephesians. And when you get there, just realize that the big numbers are the chapter divisions. And just get to chapter 2. And it'll help if you follow along as I read. And then just keep it open there. If, you, if you've got a smartphone with you, you can look that up too. Just go to 
to BibleGateway.com. I'm not sure. Sometimes our Wi-Fi works here. Sometimes it doesn't. But it's, if you want to go through that, it's WMC2512. WMC2512. Go to BibleGateway.com. And uh, I'm using the, the English Standard Version, the ESV, and you can follow along there as well. And I just want to read Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 7. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let me just read up to verse 10, actually. These are great verses here in verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here you see death, and life being written about in in metaphorical ways in terms of sinning and being saved. It says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then later it says we were made alive together with Christ. So you have death and life. Well, I want us to take a few minutes to see how we can go from being dead to being alive. And I want to do that in four movements. If you're into to classical music, lots of pieces are written like this. They had different movements, but, but all those movements were interconnected, and, and yet they were all leading somewhere. So this is almost like a, a symphony with four movements. And so I've put these on your sermon notes, and you can follow along. And if you want, you can uh, jot down a few things in, in the spaces there or on the back of that sheet as well. But the first movement is called A Lifeless People. A lifeless people. That line in verse 1 is kind of strange, isn't it? This is, this is a letter written to people who had already become Christians, and so it's written in the past tense, but it says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I say it's strange because it, it sounds almost like these are zombies, like, like the walking dead. They were dead, yet they were walking. But that actually describes the state of every human being living in their natural state. And that description carries right through there to verse 3, where it, where it tells us how this could be so, how we could be described as being lifeless. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, as again, we're dead, yet we lived, in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Now, there are other forces at work we see here, but it almost 
paints it as, as sort of an unthinking, uh, zombie-like walking toward wherever the road is going to take us. We're just following the course of the world. We're just carrying out the desires of the body and mind. We are by nature, it says, children of wrath like the rest of humankind. We're, we're lifeless, yet we're, we're going somewhere, but we're really just caught in a current. It almost pictures us as being on a, on a natural trajectory towards something with no way uh, of, of getting off that moving walkway. You've seen these at airports, right? They have these moving walkways where they have little exit ex- points, but here it's almost like you're going past your gate and you just can't get off. Unless a miracle happens. Yet it's a current, it's a walkway for which we will all be held accountable as well because it's leading to wrath, God's wrath, God's judgment. And so the idea of walking in trespasses and sins, while it almost seems like as, as if it's the walking dead, the fact that we actually move and walk carries the idea of intentionality. It's not only that we're being carried along, we're also moving our legs. We are willingly heading in that direction away from God, against God. That's what sin is. It's going our own direction in in opposition to the direction that God has laid out for us in his word and in his law. To trespass or to transgress is to go against the law. And we are all lawbreakers at heart. Whether it means that we uh, do what we ought not to do or we don't do what we ought to do. But we can't restrain ourselves. We're just... We're following the course of the world. We're, we're following the prince and the power of the air. And of course, the air is not just air. There's something behind that. There's a power, a spirit that tries to oppose God, namely the devil himself. But it's almost like blindly following our natural sinful lusts and inclinations. We, we just carry out the desires of our bodies and our minds, whether, I mean, you name it, whether it's eating too much or it's being too lazy or it's lust or it's pride or... It's wrong thoughts, it's wrong ambitions. We would all admit that, that, that beating those kinds of inclinations is a constant struggle and a fight. It does not come naturally to do the right thing. We naturally go in the opposite direction. We disobey voluntarily and willingly. So there's both there. There's We're being carried along, and yet there's culpability and responsibility. Together, all of that is best described as living, yet being dead. That's our natural human state. We're sinners. We're dead, and we're in need of life. We're enslaved to our deadness, and and yet we're condemned because of our deadness. All of this talk of being dead just points out that we are in dire need of an intervention but way more than just an intervention. We are in desperate need of a resuscitation. Or better yet, we are in need of a resurrection. John Stott, a recently deceased British pastor and writer, says that we are as as unresponsive as a corpse. Brian Chappell also comments on this passage by saying, nothing convinces me more of the need for the saving initiative of God in my salvation than this assessment of my total inability to save myself. The dead cannot save themselves, end quote. So this describes our lifelessness. But Easter Sunday is all about life. 
So thankfully, the symphony doesn't end there. There's another movement in this beautiful composition, and that is a merciful, loving God. There are two uh, words there in verse 4 of Ephesians 2 that that already give us a clue that God is not about to let the situation stay in the hopelessness of verses 1 to 3. Those are the words, but God. God is going to act. But before we find out what he's going to do, we get a glimpse of who God is. And what a glimpse it is. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Let's just stop right there. Here is the nature of God. He is a God of mercy, but not just mercy, rich mercy. He is a God of love, but not just love, great love. And it had to be magnanimous amounts of mercy and love because of the magnanimous depth of our sin. Our trespasses and sins are to such an extent that we are dead in them. And so God's mercy and love had to be to such an extent that he could raise the dead. What are we doing when we, just in a general sense, plead for mercy? It means that we beg for something not to happen, something that's pretty much inevitable and most times even deserved. Kids, if you smacked your big brother or big sister, you pretty much know that you're going to get a smackdown in return. And it's probably going to be worse than the one that you gave to him or her. You deserve it. But you can plead for mercy. And they may or may not be willing to grant mercy. Well, we all deserve wrath from God. And this is not our big brother, this is the holy God. And we have offended him by sinning repeatedly. And so we deserve the penalty for offending holy God. We have disobeyed him. It says right there, we are sons of disobedience. We are children of wrath like the rest of humankind. None of us is exempt. But God is in his very being and character rich in mercy. He has got a unlimited bank account of mercy. And he offers to keep us from what we rightly deserve. And he also has great love with which he loved us. He has large love toward his people. And we needed large amounts of love to save the likes of us, people who, who, who try to run our own lives. Even though God has created us and he has a right to tell us how to live, We say, no, no, I know better. We effectively, as Don Carson says, de-God God. We think we know better than him. How foolish. Yet God, motivated by his own love and mercy, offers a new life. What does he do? Look again at verses 4 to 6. This is just great, just a turnaround here from verses 1 to 3. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were still dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I mean, what, what in here compels him to do that? 
other than rich mercy and, and big love. Great love. There's nothing in us, certainly, that compels him to do that. Yet God offers new life. And that brings us to the third movement of this composition from the mind of the, of the great composer, God. It starts with lifeless people. It, it moves to a merciful, loving God and then to a living Savior. Did you see that down there in verses 5 and 6? Here's where the resurrection comes into play. From verse 5, really down through verse 10, the focus here is on Jesus Christ. His name comes up four times in those verses. But it's especially on the fact that he's alive in there in verses 5 and 6. This is the wonder of Easter. Jesus has been raised. The, the group saying it, Christ the Lord is risen today. We started the service with, up from the grave he arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. And in so doing, Jesus won. He, he, he gained the victory over death. Remember, we were dead. The very thing that comes into the world because of our sin, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6 says, is the very thing that God defeated when he raised his son. Death is swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 talks about Christ's resurrection as Dave read, and later on in that chapter, it actually taunts and, and heckles death itself. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? When Jesus was raised from the dead, the futile sting of death was done away with. Why? Because now death, death doesn't mean a final end anymore. Death doesn't need to bring the ultimate last word, the ultimate hopelessness. When Jesus was raised from the dead, life appeared. And, and, and so as believers, we no longer grieve as those without hope. And Jesus is alive today. He is seated, it says there, in the heavenly places. Now the resurrection means a lot of things. It, it signified that God was satisfied with the accomplishments of Jesus in his life and in his death. Jesus fully obeyed the Father in living a perfect life. He fully obeyed the Father in going to the cross as the perfect Lamb of God, as we sang in the last song there, and atoning for the sins of everyone who would turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the Father's grand purpose of saving a people unto himself. But there's more than all that, isn't there? The resurrection of Jesus means something for you and for me. There's a fourth movement here. And like a lot of symphonies, it ends where it started. But it finishes what it left unresolved. The first movement was a lifeless people. But, but that's not a good way to end. That's futility and hopelessness. But then God got involved in the second movement. And then he... He added the involvement of his son in the third movement. And so now we go back to the people. And praise God, in the fourth movement, we see a resurrected people. Right from the but God in verse 4, you see the change that God has brought about from the hopelessness of verses 1 to 3. Verse 1 started out with those four words, and you were dead. But jump ahead to verse 5, there you see the words, made us alive. You were saved, raised us up. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it had a ginormous impact on people who were previously dead. God did not just breathe life into Jesus. When he breathed life into Jesus, he also gave the opportunity for previously dead people to have life breathed into them. You could put it this way. Because we were dead, Jesus died. 
But because Jesus went from death to life, we can go from death to life. It's not a better life that we most need. It's a new life that we most need. You know, the whole Bible actually leads to this great truth. If you see this sort of as the bottom of the funnel, everything else sort of comes to this. This is the apex right here in, in, the, in the resurrection. In Genesis 3, starts off right from the beginning. When humankind first disobeyed God, they brought sin and death into the world. But the fact that God would bring life out of death is a constant theme from there on in. And Jesus is the grand culmination of that. So let me just mention two illustrations from the Bible to illustrate the point here of Ephesians 2. In the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, God actually uses one of his spokesmen, a a prophet named Ezekiel, to put a real-life picture on it. In what's likely some kind of vision, he sends Ezekiel to a valley of bones, dry human bones piled up in a valley. Today, it'd be something like God sending someone to an old, forsaken cemetery. And then God tells Ezekiel something really weird. He actually asks him, can these bones live? In other words, what do you think, Ezekiel? Do you think these bones can be brought back to life? Into living beings? Now, there's an immediate context here in that the nation of Israel had been removed from their land and that God was letting them know that they're going to get back in. But there's also a wider context here that's pointing ahead to the resurrection of dead people. Because he tells Ezekiel to talk to the bones and to tell them, here's what he wants them to tell the bones, thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. Now just think of being in that cemetery. You'd say, come on. That's impossible. You can't do that. But you know what happens? This is how Ezekiel records it. As I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. Or whatever a rattling sound is like. And the bones came together, it says. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, muscles. And flesh had come upon them. And skin had covered them. And eventually, it says, breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet. Now that would be something. I'm sure that would make CNN or Fox News. Now that's a death-to-life experience. Now if you're doubting this, you can read about this in Ezekiel 37. It's, it's mind-boggling, mind-exploding. Maybe bone-rattling would be a better word for it. It's, it's this vision of what God is able to do. And if he can do that, he can certainly bring new life into that which was dead. The other illustration is not just a vision, but it actually happened during the life of Jesus with one of his good friends named Lazarus. Now you can read about this in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Now Jesus was somewhere else when he heard that his friend Lazarus had died. And so all his friends, his brothers and his sisters actually called Jesus to come and help. 
And they called him while Lazarus was still sick. He, he was sick, sorry, but he was still alive. And so Jesus, it seems, intentionally decides not to come right away. He knew what he was about to do. And so when Jesus eventually decides to show up, by this time Lazarus is already dead and gone. And I mean gone, his body is in a tomb. So before he gets to the tomb, he talks to the people that are gathered around there, his two sisters and others that are there as well, mostly family. But he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. It's an amazing statement. Jesus is life. And he goes on, he says, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Another amazing statement. Uh, This hints already, though, you can see here at the necessary response at our part, doesn't it? If you believe, even though you'll die, you'll still live. Hmm. But he keeps going. He says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Must have been thinking at this point, what is he talking about? And what does this have to do with my dead brother? But remember, Lazarus is there dead in a tomb. And so eventually Jesus heads over there. And he tells them to roll the stone away. Does that sound familiar? And then he actually yells into the tomb. It says Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! Then it says, and the man who had died came out. Just like, okay, I guess I better obey Jesus. But just like those dead bones in Ezekiel, this dead man obeys Jesus and does what he's told by the Son of God. God can bring people to life. He doesn't give them a better life. He gives them new life. Just before he died on the cross, Jesus said in John 14, 19, Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you will also live. This is really amazing, friends. This is the truth of Easter. It is the truth that on your own, without God breathing new life into you, you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you are walking. You see, Jesus actually talks about two kinds of resurrection. There's a resurrection of life, but there is also a resurrection of judgment. So this is not like if you don't become a believer, if you don't become a Christian, that you're just going to be annihilated. No. There is a resurrection. You will come to life. There's a resurrection of life. There's a resurrection of judgment. If you aren't connected to Jesus when you are made, where you are made alive together with Christ, as it says here, you will be raised to a resurrection of judgment where you will be judged by the sins of your life rather than the perfections of, listen to this, of Jesus Christ's life. Trust me when I say that when you stand before God, you will want to present Jesus' life before God rather than your own. You will want to ask God to judge you by what Jesus accomplished, by his perfect obedience to God, not on your own sin-stained, law-breaking life. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How do you go about doing that? Well, the answer that we saw already is to believe. 
That's what Jesus said before he raised Lazarus. Remember, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This believing really just means to have faith, to to trust, to to bank on, to totally rely on. And we see that very thing in the next section there in Ephesians 2. By grace, God's act, you have been saved through faith, your response. We can't rely on our own feeble attempts at doing good things to earn our way to God. They never, ever measure up. Even our good works are are tainted with self-serving motivations to say nothing of our sinning and rebelling and breaking God's laws. Our good works condemn us, and our sins condemn us. Well, what's left? Say, how do I then get there? Well, you have to put forward Jesus' perfect life. That's what faith is. Trusting in what Jesus did. That's our only hope. Put your faith there. So my friend, if you are here on this Easter Sunday and you're not sure that you have this new life, then admit your sins. Cry out for God's mercy and put your faith in what God has done for you in Christ and his death instead of you and in his resurrection for you. And when you do that, you will be made alive together with Christ. That's the promise here. And by grace, you will be saved and you will be raised up with him. You will have new life. This is the beauty of Resurrection Sunday. You can go from death to life. You can go from death to life. You can have a death to life experience. If you're not sure, or maybe you have questions about something I have said today, make sure you find me. I'd love to talk with you a little bit more about that. You can usually find me under the lamppost in the foyer there. Why does God do this? What compels him to do this besides We've already seen his his rich mercy, his great love. Well, look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. All the praise and all the glory and all the honor for bringing us from death to life goes to God alone for granting undeserving people not a better life, but a new life. Let's bow together in prayer. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, on this day when we reflect upon all the events of this whole week, of that whole week back there in Jerusalem, and when we marvel at what was accomplished, And when we glory in the fact that Jesus is alive, we are so filled with praise and with gratitude. Your plan and your purposes were so amazingly and wonderfully carried out. No one could conceive of a plan like that but you. We are grateful for your plan of salvation. And today especially, we are grateful that you raised Jesus from the dead. He, he took our place in death, and he took our place in being raised from the dead so that we too might have life. That we might be, as Jesus told Nicodemus, that we might be born again. That we might have eternal life. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that Jesus lived and died and now lives again. Thank you for new life that you have accomplished for us 
and now offer to us through our precious Lord Jesus Christ. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.